0: Growing up in Australia, a young Warwick Schiller was hungry for horse news and studied Western Horseman magazine like he was cramming for a final.
1: My dad used to get the Western Horseman magazine and I used to just sit and paw over those things and i read them cover to cover to cover to cover. Till this very day, you could probably show me a, a Western Horseman magazine from 1975 and I could probably tell you at least one of the articles. You
0: Hi, I'm John Hare. Welcome to the Whoa Podcast about horses and horsemanship. you found the safe place to be horse crazy. Before we get started, I want to say thanks. This little horse show is really growing and it's all because of you guys. Thanks for sharing and subscribing. That helps so much. If you have a minute, reviewing the podcast on iTunes would help a lot too. Okay, back to the horse stuff. This week I talked to clinician trainer Warwick Schiller. Warwick travels the world giving horse clinics. Just looking at his hectic schedule gave me jet lag. But Warwick is in demand for his common sense, clearly spoken, straightforward approach to horsemanship. In this conversation, I get a little background on Warwick and then we move right into talking about how to figure out the inner workings of horsemanship. Warwick talks fast, so hang on to your hat. Here's Warwick Schiller on the Woe Podcast. Good morning, Warwick. How are you doing? Hey, John. I'm
1: great. How about
0: you? I'm doing well. Thanks for being on the Well Podcast.
1: No problem at all.
0: You travel the world. A lot of people know somewhat about your training techniques, but many people don't know about the, the early days of Warwick Schiller. And I was wondering if maybe you could tell us how where you grew up, how you came to America, how you became to be a horse trainer.
1: So I was born in a, a country town in, in New South Wales, Australia. So that's the it's on the east – that's on the, one of the states on the east coast of Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I grew up on a 1,200-acre sheep uh, – mi- mixed mixed farm-like sheep.
0: Uh-huh. And were horses a part of your early life? You know what?
1: I have had people ask me that, and I cannot remember when I started riding horses, but I know what I didn't. I'm thinking about – I must have been about eight years old, I'm, I'm thinking uh-huh. – um, I remember I was in the fifth grade, and I broke my arm in the steer riding at a rodeo, and I was riding horses before that, and so I remember being in fifth grade with a broke with a cast on my arm. So that, that's about the, the the date I can I can put it together.
0: When did you did you first start working with a horse? Did you have a, a horse as a boy, and was there uh, something that you were trying to do?
1: Well, I um, you know, I started the rodeo back in the day. Oh did he? Um, oh, he man. did all he did yeah, he did all the events. He uh he rode bulls, he rode Tadelbum stair horses, he calf roped and he and he steer wrestled even though he was about five foot six, maybe five five. He uh, still steer wrestled and back then they were steer wrestled muleys in Australia, so it was <laughs> pretty <laughs> interesting. For those of you who are listening to this don't know what a muley is, it's a steer without a cow without horns. And they started importing quarter horses into Australia in the late 60s by the time dad was no longer riding ralph stock events he was doing some of the timed events and that's that was his introduction to quarter horses and so you know i think my first pony my first horse was a a little white pony named tonto Uh named after the lone rangers offsider right and uh that was my first pony i ever had and then i had a man named Mary Rose, who I think might have been Tonto's mother from, from memory. But, uh, you know, I grew up on 1200 acres and it was just basically get on and go ride. And uh, we did go to pony club. So there was that slightly structured part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Were you having problems with, with Tonto? Do I mean, did you want to learn more about what made him tick?
1: You know what I know? I think, <clears throat> I think for the longest time, I didn't want to know more. I, I think I, I, uh, back in the day, I, I kind of knew everything.
0: <laughs> at that age i think yeah, we all do again, but,
1: uh, <laughs> I, and, and i think that i was just one of those kids i don't know why but uh,
0: so your dad was probably the primary source of your horsemanship or your horse knowledge at that time
1: oh he didn't he didn't know anything i wasn't going to listen to him
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> my father was one of those guys that um he was he was talented i'm i'm not talented at all i mean i've had to learn this stuff extremely step by step by step like until I actually knew it intimately I couldn't actually do it whereas dad you know he um uh-huh. and I remember him doing a demonstration at the pony club one time on one of the horses that we had doing a, a western riding course you know with the flying lead changes in it right so he did the whole western riding thing and uh when uh, he was done he says anybody got any questions and there was a lady there, and she was shortlisted for the Olympics uh, oh. in dressage in Australia. Her name was Nina Mackay, wasn't name, And she said, yes, can I see that again? And so, he, you know, he could impress someone of an uh, Olympic level, right. but he had, he had no idea what he was doing. He didn't read articles and didn't have other people to – I have
0: no idea where it came from. Absolutely none. Wow. Well, what drove you to learn more I mean, if you had to work really hard, there had to be something driving you there.
1: Well, you know, we, we so we did pony club, and then we started showing at quarter horse shows. And back then, you had the one horse, and you did every single thing. Uh-huh. All of the events that we did, the reining was the one we thought was cool. You know, my my dad used to get the Western Horseman magazine, and I, I used to just sit and pore over those things, and I read them cover to cover to cover to cover till this very day. You could probably show me a a Western Horseman magazine from 1975 and I could probably tell you at least one of the articles that's in it. Wow. I just would read those things over and over and over and over. Anyway, the pictures in there, like early day pictures of um, like reigning horses and stuff were like, wow, you know, like horses could stop like that. I thought that was really, really, really cool. Really early on.
0: Uh Uh-huh. What drove you to come to the United States?
1: I wanted to learn more about the rainy, and uh, I actually was a banker. I worked in a bank in Australia, and at the time they would give you what they called a year's leave without pay, so you could take time, you could take a year off and go and travel or whatever you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And when you come back, you'd be guaranteed to have a job. And so I took a year's leave without pay to um, come to America. I knew one person in America. It was. Uh, uh, a girl I'd met at the National Farms Rodeo in Australia,
0: uh-huh. and
1: I just struck up a conversation with her. We we talked at the rodeo one day. That was that was it. Never saw her ever again. Exchange addresses, and I kept in contact with her. And When I was coming to America, I wrote to her and said, I want to come to America. She said, yeah, we well, can come and stay at my mom and dad's place if you want. And so uh, I flew to LA, and they lived up near Yosemite a uh-huh. little place called Cathy's Valley. I went up there and I stayed there with them for a couple of weeks and then we went to Cow Palace. And at Cow Palace, we were watch- went up to watch the raining and the rain cow horse. And it was the raining I was really interested in.
0: Right.
1: And uh, California, with its cow horse roots, the, the, the emphasis is more on the cow horse, not quite the finesse sort of raining. And so I was sitting there watching the raining and the raining was, I thought, was so-so. And then this guy came in on this grey horse and it was like... That's what I'm talking about. That's, that's the thing. That's what I want to do right there. Anyway, it turns out that uh, Tony Amaral, so famous California Hackamore trainer, Tony Amaral. So, you know, like Bob Avila worked for Tony Amaral.
0: Right.
1: Benny Catron worked for Tony Amaral. Huh. Tony was judging that day, and the people I was staying with knew Tony and went and asked him, Do you know anybody who's looking for someone to go to work for him? And he said, Yeah, I know a guy. And that guy turned out to be Don Murphy. And Don Murphy was the guy on the gray horse. Oh. So I got an introduction, and uh, two days later, I went to work for him. Wow. Yeah, that was that was my whole start.
0: And then what was it like working for a reigning trainer? Well, it had to be substantially different than the banking, because you go from uh, cashing checks and doing loan documents to riding horses every day.
1: Well, I will tell you, I wore the hair off and the skin off my legs for <laughs> about a month <laughs> or so when I first went there. And what was, you know, what was really, looking back, I wasn't really ready for, you know, I didn't learn near as much from him as I should have done because I wasn't ready. But I did learn probably more from him after I worked for him than when I worked for him.
0: Just things that he'd said
1: years later would just make sense, you know. Right,
0: right. I find that too, I, I've... The, We'll be riding along, and, and maybe my horse starts doing something, and I'll remember uh, a class or a clinic that I took a couple of years back, and the trainer's words might be echoing in my head right then. That, oh, this is what he was talking about. I wasn't ready back then. I didn't quite understand it. But
1: Right. Yeah, they, you know, you've got to plant that seed and let it grow, and you're not always ready for that that seed to grow yet.
0: And reining training is such a high, much higher level than the, I'm going to use it, it's going to sound derogatory, I don't mean it to, but the average recreational horse rider uses. You know, a guy wants to ride his horse down the trail, he doesn't really need him to to do a whole lot just to kind of be under him and, and stay reasonable at the time. That's quite a difference from what you're helping people out with now
1: yeah quite you know quite a difference and i was I was probably lucky I was interested in that because there is just so much to training a reining horse, teaching a reining horse how to do things, and I'm not saying reining is the epitome of of great horsemanship, but what I am saying is there is you, you know because you're going to do those things at high speed on a loose rein, you can't mm-hmm. make them do it, so you really have to learn how to teach those horses to want to do things. And there's also the aspect of everything has some fast stuff and everything has some slow stuff. It's not all about just keeping them quiet, like, say, the Western Pleasure. Right. Or it's not all about just having them go fast, like barrel racing, but it's, you know, like, think about barrel, I would say team roping, barrel racing, those kind of events. There is an element of the slow, like you're, like a rope horse has to be able to stand in the box good, And when you run up to, you know, cattle, they've got to be able to rate. So they they can't just keep running off sort of thing. They can't Mm -hmm. be all up. Or a barrel racing horse has to run to that first barrel really hard, come out of the alleyway, run down to that first barrel really hard and rate. But it's not a complete come down. It's just a bit of a come down, but you're still kind of up. Whereas the reining horses, you know, you've got the fast circles and the slow circles. You've got the spins. And as a reining judge, when you judge the spin in the reining pattern, it's, you know, say the pattern calls for four spins to the right. It will say four spins to the right, hesitate. That hesitation is part of the maneuver. Can your horse spin really fast, then stop, and go from spinning really fast to completely relaxed? And if your horse can spin really fast and can't stand still, you won't get as much credit for it. So there's the, and it's the same thing with the, the sliding stops. You know, you've got to come around the corner and run down there and do a big stop, but you've got to, go through all the gears on the way down. First gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, fifth gear, stop, roll back, first gear. And so just the teaching of all that stuff really gave me a great basis into the mind of a horse as far as being able to get them really good at the extremes. And I've been looking into... Classical dressage is, is, is very, 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 very cool. And there's a famous Portuguese classical dressage master named Nuno Oliveira. Mm. And my favorite quote from him is, your horse needs to be relaxed, yet remain powerful. And that just sums it up right there. Clinics all around the world, I start out right now, and the first thing I say is the only thing we need to do is get your horse relaxed and responsive at the same time. That's, that's, that's there's a lifetime of work in just getting that. Because think about your average trial riding horse, it's probably relaxed the whole time. Right. But, you know, if you haven't worked on getting those horses up and then back down so they don't know how to control themselves when they get up, mm-hmm. you know, and two kangaroos jump out of the bushes and your horse loses his mind and stays losing his mind because he doesn't know how to come back down. So it's, it's almost like a trail rider needs to have a horse that can do the same thing as a reining horse. Not so much the maneuvers, but the mental aspect of the whole thing. Being able to be relaxed, yet responsive. You know, John Lyons had a great saying years ago. He said, a a safe horse is always quiet, but a quiet horse isn't necessarily safe. Right. And what he means by that is if your horse is only quiet, like he's kind of half lazy, you know, you can't really get him to do much. He's only quiet. You can't get him up. Can't get him responsive. I guarantee someday something will make him responsive. And if he's not used to being responsive and getting that shot of adrenaline and being able to handle it, you are going to have a wreck
0: and then is that just do you teach a horse that by by bringing him up and then bringing him back down?
1: yep, yeah, that's really what you're doing and one of the really, really good things I've seen is the collaboration between martin do you know who martin black is
0: yes I've had him on the show yeah.
1: Okay, yeah, collaboration between Martin Black and Dr Stephen Peters and they, they've they come up with a thing called evidence based horsemanship and oh, Dr. Yes. Stephen mm-hmm. Peters is a human neurosurgeon and the D V D that they have out on that called Evidence Based Horsemanship is one of those pivotal moments when I watched that. I mean, I'd i I'd been working on this for quite a while, like trying to get that mental balance but and I knew I needed it, but watching that D V D kind of made me understand, like on a chemical level, how important it is and it's it's uh yeah, the science behind it is pretty amazing. And um, yeah, you know, everybody I talk to, I say, if you don't have that DVD, get it, watch it, watch it again. And it's not a training DVD. It's not going to tell you how to do things, but it'll tell you why it's so important. And it really, really, really explains.
0: We have a show on that from a couple of years ago, so people can listen to that and kind of get a feel for it. But it, it almost like takes you into the mechanism of the horse. What how he works what he thinks of what makes him what makes him go what makes him slow down and what what lights up in his right. brain when he does get excited
1: right exactly and horses are very emotional creatures and so they you know they they live and die by their emotions later this year in durango colorado they're having a there's a summit called the best horse practices yes summit and it's um it is chaired by uh steven's partner Maddie Butcher, mm-hmm. and uh, Maddie's going to have me presenting at that, and I'm looking forward to it because I'm, I, I know I'm going to learn, I'm yeah. going to get take away more knowledge than I take there, so that right. should be fun.
0: Oh, and so what kind of presentation will you have there?
1: You know, I, I actually had dinner with Maddie and Dr. Stephen Peters in Arizona uh-huh.
0: uh,
1: in January this year, and I said to him, you know, I'm, I kind of feel like a fake you having me at uh, this thing because I'm no scientist. You know, I feel like I'm going to be the least educated person there. Maddie assures me I'll be fine. But, you know, the, the, the thing I hope to bring to the table is I think the only talent I have. And, and uh, I think my big talent is being able to explain things to people in a way they understand. I mean, I'm not reinventing the wheel. Nothing I teach at my clinics I came up with. It's all stuff I've learned from other people. But I've heard it over the years that people will say, oh, you know what? I knew that I just, I, I've been told that I just been never been told it that way. And it makes sense to me. And the reason I think I can do that is because that person is me. I got taught a lot of stuff over the years that didn't really make sense to me. And I kind of, until I kind of figured out really what it meant. And so um, I kind of, you know, promised myself, if you ever get to where you're good enough to, to teach this stuff, you need to teach it the way you wished it was taught to you in the first place, like plain and simple layman's terms. You know, I use a lot of analogies, tell people, I understand. They already know the concepts. They just might be applying it to something else in their life. So All Right.
0: And I, I envision horsemanship as uh, there's, a, there's a beach in California that has a very high cliff, and there's a whole bunch of steps. There's got to be, you know, Two hundred steps up to the top of the cliff. And I almost look at like horsemanship is somewhat like that, although there's really not any top to that. It, and and you have to go one step at a time. You know sometimes you'll you may be able to jump two steps, but you can never jump ten steps. It's just too physically impossible to do it. And you might hear something on step two that is a kind of a step ten concept. And if you can remember it, when you get to step ten, it will make sense. And that's kind of the way uh, I think that you're you're really talking about. You started from the bottom, and you're going up all the steps. You're a little bit higher up than a lot of people, so you're helping many of the people below you take a step at a time and get get their horsemanship a little bit better at it at the time. Does that make sense?
1: Oh yeah, exactly. And uh, that's really you know that's really all it's kind of turned into it's turned into I'm a little bit further ahead in the horsemanship journey than the people I'm helping. Right. And I'm kind of, uh, taking them along on my journey and, and, and kind of leading the way. And then when I stumble, I'm kind of letting them know where I stumbled. And, you know, I, I, I did a meme, uh, last year and I just, ha- I just posted on the Facebook yesterday cause I had a revelation, had a big revelation on the weekend. I had a, a thing, But the meme said, the path isn't a straight line, it's a spiral. You continually come back to things you thought you understood and see deeper truths. And so I turned 50 last week. And before I turned 50, I thought, you know, I've got this. I've got this stuff figured out. I did a clinic in Tyler, Texas last weekend, and I had an epiphany, like a, just an amazing epiphany. I can't not look at everything I've done uh, without looking at it differently from last weekend, so it's uh, yeah, pretty. Amazing. I, like right now, I'm kind of, I'm kind of buzzing with uh, excitement because it's just I'm uh, seeing everything in a different light, and I think that's what you you do. And there was a lady at the clinic, and she is a psych nurse of some sort, mm-hmm. and she was saying it's like the, she called. She said it was about the spiral of addiction. You know, you don't even know you had a problem, and then you think you have a problem, and then you think you're going to work on it, and then you think you've got it fixed, and then you then you relapse she said every time you relapse you come out of it further when you spiral back up you come out of it further and then you'll relapse and then relapsing is important it's important to go back because when you spiral back out of it you will you will get further out of the whole thing and and uh, you know i think this whole horsemanship journey is the same kind of thing you get to the point where you think i got this and then you relapse and then when you come back up again you 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 get further it's like the peaks and valleys thing you know right. like the stock market or whatever mm-hmm. Have, once you understand that those relapses those going backwards is is important because it the only way you can go forward is is getting to a certain point and then falling back right. then you start to enjoy those you start to enjoy those moments you know instead of being frustrated by them you think this is cool
0: and isn't that interesting that before we got on the air here i started to, i was looking at a couple of your videos and you were talking about how You're learning horsemanship by moving forward, falling back, moving forward even more. And I was watching you um, get a horse used to uh, washing his face being washed. And the horse kind of lowered his head at first just like you wanted him to. And then he backslid. And then he got a little bit better. Then he backslid again. And then he got even better than he did before. And I just find that fascinating that horses, that's what horses do as well.
1: Yeah, I uh, at the, the clinic in Texas the other day, there was a lady and she drove all the way from Florida to the clinic and uh, she stopped along the way somewhere in Mississippi, Alabama, somewhere there overnight uh, and got up the next day and went. her and a friend went to leave and they couldn't load the horse. And they tried for four hours and couldn't load the horse. They yeah. tried all day, really, to try to load this horse and they couldn't. So they stayed an extra night and then the next day they got some help and I think they just manhandled this poor thing into the horse trailer. Right And so... The clinic was a three-day clinic and she mentioned it to me. And I said, well, the last day, the last session, what we'll do is we'll bring that truck and trailer into the arena and I'll help you with that stuff. So we started out and I I talked about this whole principle. And I I said, you know, I'm not going to try to get this horse in the trailer. This horse went anywhere near the trailer. He just like, his eyes popped out of his head and he wanted to run backwards sort of thing, you know. I started working on him, and... I started working on him doing just a little bit of groundwork at the furthest point away from in the arena as I could, as furthest away from the trailer. Right. And then when he got a little closer to the trailer, I let him rest. And then we got closer and closer. And then he relapsed and he'd, he'd be telling me, I want to go back to the gate. So we'd go all the way back there and went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I worked on him for about four hours. And it wasn't like four hours of just working on him, but he was asking and waiting and asking and waiting. And anyway, in the end, we could... Uh, just walk into the he just walked straight in the trailer and he was fine but I and, and it took me about three hours and 55 minutes before I even tried to get him into the trailer uh-huh. it wasn't about the trailer right at the very end right before he stepped into the trailer I, I was just before he stepped in before I was thinking about trying to get him to step in I said now he's probably going to relapse again and you think oh no it's not working he's getting worse and I said he's got to get through that stage before he comes out the other side anyway and then right. in the end he could just walk straight in, and and I just heard that uh, the next morning when she was leaving to go back to Florida, he just got straight in. He was fine. Oh, okay. But yeah, you've got to you've got to remember that relapsing is part of the the learning process, and so you've got to learn to right. appreciate the failures. And once once you get your head around that, it takes the frustration out of the going backwards. It's like this is great.
0: Do you think a lot of people see that? Relapse and then think to themselves that oh that process isn't working and they yes. they change the process which is probably they the worst the thing you can do right?
1: right exactly yep and and you know that's I think it's with everything not just with the whole horsemanship thing I mean this this whole horsemanship thing is turning into a life journey I was in Australia recently oh last year was in New Zealand sorry I was doing a, a presentation at a horse expo in New Zealand with Dan Steers who's the other half of the Double Dans you know Dan mm-hmm. James yes. And uh, Dan and I did this presentation together, and we were both saying that you know this whole this whole horsemanship thing is it's a it's a discipline, and we don't mean reining or dressage. It's a discipline like karate. It's a it's a personal development journey, and the horse is just what guides you on the journey. You could take up karate if you wanted to, and, and I right. think a lot of people take up karate because they don't want to get beat up or something rather. And after a while, they realize it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with it's a self-development journey. And I think a lot of people start out on this path. I want to go for a trial ride. My horse spooks at the kangaroos or whatever it is. Uh And if they really stick with it, they realize after a while, it's not about the horse. It's actually, you know, it's about something you're passionate about and you have to make some personal changes and have some personal growth in order to, to get the thing to happen that you want to happen with the horse or whatever. Uh, I think that, uh, for me, it was the reining horses, really. I wanted to to learn about how to get those young reining horses better. Because I'm a bit of a, I was a bit of an oddity in the reining world because, uh,
0: you know,
1: I kept looking outside the box for answers, and that's what really got me into the whole horsemanshipy Ray Hunt sort of stuff,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: was wanting to get those young reining horses better, but, you know, easier to train sort of thing. And that was the start of the whole thing for me. So that was the catalyst. That was what drew me down this path. But I, re, but now, you know, now I, under, I now I understand that it's just a it's a whole you know self development journey is what it is.
0: Let me just kind of ask you a little personal question as far as, as as a trail rider, if you want your horse to back up, you you know you can get them to to back up three or four steps. What's the difference between that kind of a backup and then the reining backup where you get your horse moving? I mean, they're jetting back there 10 steps at a, you know, and they just really want to do that.
1: Uh, well, the big thing for me is the backup, you know, the backup is kind of a useless thing. Like you don't need to back a horse up. Let's just step away from the running for a second. Like okay. at any point in time, you don't really have to back a horse up. You know, people say, well, what about if you're opening a gate? You could open the gate, push it, walk around, turn your horse around and push it shut. Right. And I'm talking about under saddle, you know. Of course. Because some people, I say to, I oh. say to people, so uh, when do you need to back your horse up? And they said when it gets out of the trailer. And I go, well, you don't ride it in the trailer. So really, for me, the backup is not something you need. The backup is a tool. And when I teach horses to back up, the really the thing I'm really looking for is for them to shift their weight over their hocks. You can teach a horse to you can get a horse to back up, and they don't shift their weight backwards. They actually lean forward and push back with their front feet, which is just a backup. But mm. for me, the, um, teach them to back up, to shift their weight over the hocks. I mean, all, you know, collection is not where they carry their head. Collection is where they carry their weight. And mm. really, what you're trying to do is get them to flex the joints in their hock, to teach them, you know, you teach them to, uh, to rock back. And that's easy, it's easily taught. I mean, all I do when I'm teaching horses to back up is just just take the slack out of their own drill soft, like a little soft feel, and just wait. And they might stand there for quite a while. And after a while, they'll kind of just think about either breaking at the pole or shifting their weight backwards or something. Rather than they do, I let go. So when I teach them to back up, they volunteer to back up more so than me make them back up. It's more like the, the more you pull them, the more they lean on you sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But as far as getting a horse to back up faster, right. they only back up faster when they start to carry themselves better. And I've found I don't really ever have to work on the back up it's all the other education I do where they start to carry themselves better that the backup gets better on its own. You know, to go back to Nuno Oliveira, your horse needs to be relaxed, yet remain powerful. The, right. the really good backup comes from a horse who's standing still, but he's almost like a tennis player waiting for the serve. He's he's ready to go, but he's not
0: going. Got it. Well, it's more more like that right thing easy, wrong thing difficult. Yes. If you show him the easy way to back up, then if they can carry their weight better then it's going to be a much easier backup
1: one of the things i i tell people all the time is for the most part i don't ask a horse to change their body shape i'll ask them to do something they can't do without changing their body shape and i wish i could say that in a shorter way but i can't
0: what does that mean
1: <laughs> what does that mean okay well, let's talk about your backup okay let's say you want your horse doesn't back up very well like he's, he's very sluggish he kind of drags himself backwards right if you were to take your horse over and get beside the fence probably beside an arena fence to where you could reach out and your fingertips could touch the top rail of the fence okay and you're beside the fence you could just ask your horse to back up real softly and when you pick up and he doesn't back up you could just pull on your inside rein and turn him into the fence and make him go the other way and when the first time you do that he's going to stagger around and like huh, what 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 do you want me to do and then you would go along the fence and stop and then ask him to back up again. And if he doesn't back up, do a sharp turn of the fence and go the other way. Well, you're not asking him to get the weight off his front end. You're asking him to do something you can't do without getting the weight off his front end. And if you, And re- That's one of a million exercises you can do. But if you repeated that over and over and over, pretty soon your horse will be standing there and he thinks, I'm going to roll over my hocks and turn into this fence here in a minute. And when he gets his body in that position, thinking you might have to do that, then you ask for your back up all of a sudden the backup works a lot better because the horse is just not standing there slouching Mm. on his front end. He's kind of standing there a little engaged because he knows he's going to do that other thing. So that's a perfect example. The first place I ever kind of really got this was uh, when Andrea Fapani, so Andrea is one of the best reining trainers in the world, when he first came out in 2005, I think it was, with a set of DVDs on reining. Uh And it was the first time anybody had ever had a very, very, very structured, set of training DVDs. I'd I'd, I'd bought everybody's training DVDs before that, but for the most part, the horses they were doing it on already knew the they already already could do it. And so they weren't showing you the training. And Andreas came out and he was showing you how he teaches the young horse to stop off the word wall is exactly what I'm talking about. So I'll tell you the saying again. The saying is you don't ask them to do the thing you want them to do. You ask them to do something they can't do without doing the thing you wanted to do so andrea does something very similar to the backup i just talked about he walks along the fence probably about arms distance from the fence and he says whoa and if i don't stop he doesn't pull on the reins doesn't do anything he just says whoa and if i don't stop he just tips the nose into the fence and goes the other way now halfway through that turn the horse has stopped his hind feet all his weights on his hind feet all his weights off his front feet not because you've asked him to, but because in order for him to make that turn that that small turn, he has to shorten his body up, shift his weight back, and keep his front feet active, and in a stop, you would like all the weight on their hind feet and all the weight off their front feet. Right. so the more you try to pull and make a horse take the weight off his front feet and put him on his hind feet, the more he will tend to lean on your hands. So you don't ask him to take his weight off his hind feet, front feet and put him on his hind feet. you just ask him to make a turn in a small area between you and, between where he is and the fence. And in order to do that, the horse goes, hang on, let me shift my weight back and take the weight off my front end so I can accomplish what you're asking. God. And so Andrea will walk up and down the fence, say, well, turn him into the fence. Walk up and down the fence, say, well, turn him into the fence. And pretty soon you walk along and you say, well, and the horse shifts his weight back and gets ready to make that turn. And if you think about collection, collection is just a state of readiness. Like the tennis player waiting for the serve. A horse that's collected, is ready. Right. He could go anywhere, anytime. Think about a cutting horse, how they're in front of a cow, and they just almost squat down because they are ready to stay. They're ready to go. They're ready to go left slow. They're ready to go left fast. They're ready to go right slow. They're ready to go right fast. They're just ready. And if you've ever seen a really good cutting horse just kind of almost squat down like a tennis player with his knees bent waiting for the serve, that's all he is. He's very, very ready.
0: That goes back to one of the very first things you said, just – the light came on is that now when your horse is ready, he's going to be responsive because he's ready. He's looking for the next thing to do and he's also quiet.
1: Right. Well, well, you know, the more ready they get, the less quiet they get. So that is the, uh, there you go. (laughs) You know, that's the paradox of the whole thing. And I'm in the middle of, well, I've filmed some episodes. I've got a TV show that's, that's now out. I've filmed about six of the episodes and it's called the principles of training. It covers, what I have figured out to be, it doesn't matter any technique I've ever been told, they all fall into a certain number of principles. The TV show starts out with a um, a quote by a fellow named Harrington Emerson, who was a early 19th century efficiency expert. And it says something like, techniques there may be a million or more, but principles are few. The man who grasps the principles can make up his own techniques. The man who uses techniques alone is sure to have trouble. And that's a quote that starts at the, start of the, start at the start of the TV show. And the reason it's, it says it on the screen is because it didn't matter how many times I practiced it, I couldn't say it on camera. So <laughs> the, the show was supposed to start out with me saying what I just said, and I couldn't get it out. And I kind of gave up and said, uh, let's just type it on the screen.
0: <laughs> Where is that TV show available?
1: It's on uh, Farm and Ranch TV, which is available on Roku, which is... Roku's a bit like Netflix for TV sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's on that. And I'm also it's also about to start to air on horse and rider TV in the UK, which is, a, which is not a uh, subscription-based or a um, internet-based TV show, but it's actually going to be on real TV in people's homes. So I'm very, very excited about that.
0: You are around the world. I was looking at your clinic schedule, and good Lord, in May you're in Canada – and then in July, did I, did I read this right? Are you in Alaska, then the UK, then South Africa?
1: That is correct.
0: And then in August, you go to Ireland and Great Britain. And then in the fall, you're back. It uh, looks like you're in Australia and New Zealand.
1: Yes, that's correct. No, I'm, I'm enjoying the travel. I, I love it. I just, I've just i learned that and had to slow it down a little bit so it didn't wear me out.
0: And then what is the style of your clinics? Do you go through a set of principles or? Good question.
1: So now that I've, now that I've filmed this TV show, I'm, I'm talking about the different episodes of the principles of training and, you know, the techniques that I'm going to show you, I just, I'm going to tell you what principles they fall under because I'd like you to be able to make up your own stuff. You know, it's not about me. It's about understanding what makes horses tick and what the principles are. But my clinics have always been, I'm probably never having two horses do the same thing. It's not like, okay, everybody trots around to the left. Everybody chops down to the right. Everybody does this because all the horses are at different stages. And mm-hmm. it's the same way I train horses. I don't, you know, if I had 10 horses in training, I wouldn't have them all do the same thing. But albeit, they'd all have different things they need to do at different times. And so my clinics are more about where is your horse up to? What are you struggling with? I'll look at it, give them some stuff to work on, go to the next person. I just kind of, you know, I just kind of circulate around. But I definitely don't have everybody doing the same thing.
0: And and once they learn those principles, then they can take whatever problem comes up and apply those principles to that particular problem. That's a good way of doing it.
1: Well, what I'm trying to do is get people to be aware of, you know, like if a horse has a problem, I can I could step right in and go, okay, do this, 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 and this. Right. And it would work, but people might not understand why it worked. And so, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll go over the first six episodes of the principles of training. Of course, the first one's called make the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy. Mm-hmm. The second one is called don't go to bed angry.
0: Huh.
1: And that is about, you know, if you think about when you got married, there was probably some older, wiser person at your wedding said, now let me tell you, sonny. Yeah. The secret to a happy life is don't go to bed angry. And what they really mean is if there's any tension, any conflict builds up between the two of you, get rid of it while it's still small don't go to bed angry like every day is a new day you wake up and every day is a great day whereas if you let those little things add up eventually you can have a big blow up about absolutely nothing and i'm sure we can all agree we've all had a big argument with our spouse over something that shouldn't have been even a conversation and it wasn't about what the argument we had then it was about all the stuff that built up before that and so with horse training you know anytime your horse starts to get a bit on the upside you've got to get them back on the downside, you know, anytime they get a bit of anxiety or whatever, you've okay. got to make sure you get rid of that before you proceed with whatever you're doing. And I really learned that with the reining horses, you know? So that's the second episode. The third episode was called do the opposite. What they do with roping horses is, is score them every once in a while, which means they're back in the box. They nod, the steer runs out, but they don't go. Right. Okay. That's don't go to bed angry. You know, your horse starts to get a bit up, like he's anticipating going, you get him back down again. And it's also do the opposite. If your horse thinks he's going to run, you you don't chase the steer. When he's thinking he's not going to chase the steer, then it's time to start chasing the steer again. So do the opposite is basically you know if you, as the saying goes, you ride a fast horse slow and a slow horse fast. The next episode was called Choose where you work and choose where you rest, which is for me it's hugely important. Like you'd be amazed at the changes I can uh, make at clinics with horses just by where we ask them to trot, where we ask them to canter, and where we let them stop and rest. And mm-hmm. you have horses that are that are really gate sour, buddy sour, all those sorts of things. And I, I actually had a horse at the clinic in Missouri last week. It's a twelve-year-old Arabian, and it always rushes, rushes all the time, rushes at the canter. And it turned mm-hmm. out the reason it rushes is because it's lazy. It wants to get to where it can have a rest. And all we did was got that horse to where we let her we let her tell us where she wanted to be and all she wanted to do was be by the other horses and every time she got near the other horses we asked her to pick up a trot and if she trotted around you know she wanted to be by the other horses she could she could be around them as long as she was trotting and when she went away from the other horses we let her rest we did that over and over and over until you could ask her to trot and she would just trot along somewhere away from the horses and stop herself and then i said go ahead and ask her to canter and the girl said well this is where she rushes she always rushes and i said let's see it and the horse just went Canter, 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 canter. <laughs> and now she's just cantering around like a Western pleasure horse. So yeah. that's choose where you work and choose where you rest. The next episode after that is what I call the Donkey Kong principle. And uh, if you've ever played a video game, video games teach you how to learn. So video game, what, it doesn't matter what you're playing. And I used to play a bit of Donkey Kong back in the day. So I use that. But in a video game, you start out in the game. And when you get to the first obstacle and you die, like you don't know how to negotiate that obstacle, you die, you go back to the start and you have to do it again. You don't get to keep going. And then you go back to the start and you start again, and then you go along and then you get the first thing right, and the second thing you mess up and you go back and you start again. And It's that spiral we talked about earlier on.
0: Yes, I like that philosophy. You go
1: back to the start of the game, and you go a bit further, and then you still can't get the second thing. So you go back and you die and you start again. you do the first thing and you get to the second thing and you still can't do it and you go back. And while you're trying to figure out the second thing, you are practicing the first thing. You have to practice the first thing over and over and over. So it's like, you know, starting a young horse. The first day you'll do something with them. And it takes you an hour. The next day you come out, you don't assume they still know what you taught them yesterday. You do that thing again and it takes 15 minutes. Then it takes you 45 minutes to teach them the next thing. And then at the end of the second day, they know the first thing and the second thing. And then you come out the third day and it takes you five minutes to go over the first day's lesson and 15 minutes to go over the second day's lesson. And then you work for another hour, on, 45 minutes or something on the third thing. And at the end of the third day, they know all three things. You put them away. You get them at the start of the fourth day, and then it takes you five minutes to do the first day's work, and five minutes to do the second day's work, and 10 minutes to do the third day's work, and then you add the fourth thing. But every day you come out, you go back through your basics from the start. And that's what I call the Donkey Kong. Podcast, I love that. That's how they, uh, video games teach us to actually learn the, the basics. And it's all about perfecting the basics. Because right. If you've ever seen kids play video games, they get a game, they kind of learn the game, and then. They're up to about the third or fourth level. They've never been there before, and they look like a damn ninja, like they can do everything. And you go, how do you do that? And they go, oh, I don't know, just do it. That's, for me, that's like um, people's holy grail, like the flying lead change or whatever. The flying lead change is easy. If all everything leading up to it is perfect, the flying lead change is simple. Right. But if all the stuff leading up to it is somewhat meh, it's okay, but it's not quite good, the flying lead change is going to be your nemesis, you know, like you're not going to be able to get it at all. And so, so that episode's called The Donkey Kong Principle.
0: I like that. Uh,
1: another one's going to be called Anticipation Your Best Friend or Your Worst Enemy. And I got that title from actually watching the PBR. My dad was a bull rider, so I was a big PBR fan. And I remember one of the bull riders on there getting interviewed one time said uh, he talked about Freddie Fear. You know, being afraid. He said, "Freddie, fear. Freddie's your best friend or your worst enemy, depending on how you use him." You know, so you've got to have a bit of fear to be a bull rider. Otherwise, you'll do stupid stuff and you'll die. But you can't have too much fear, or you can't actually do what you want to do. And anticipation, training horses is the same thing. Everything they learn good through anticipation. Everything they learn bad through anticipation. And so we've got to teach them what they need to anticipate and what they don't need to anticipate. And yeah. a, a very good example in the a horse is a sliding stop. He's just an anticipation that he's going to back up while he's galloping. Those horses aren't trying to stop. They're actually trying to back up. And that's why they push their hind legs up on them so far, which is why it's important how you teach them to back up. But when you run down there and you say, whoa, those horses go, hey, I'm about to back up. I need to push backwards. And that happens while they're galloping. And that's where the sliding stop comes from. So a sliding stop mm. is a, a big anticipation. Very but... Cool. If your horse anticipates the next thing, which is the rollback, and he stops crooked and he's thinking about rolling back before he stopped, that's a bad thing. So you've got to be able to get him to anticipate things, some things, but you've got to get him to not anticipate other things. So anticipation is your best friend or your worst enemy is the, the title of another one of them. And I really don't have uh, – I'm going to do 26 episodes, so I don't know, I'm not even sure I have 26 principles. But um, it's almost these days, it doesn't matter what I learn. When someone teaches me something new, I go – I should have been able to figure that out because I understand the the reasoning behind it. And that's what I've always done with my clinics. I've never really said, you know, pull here now, push with your leg there, see, it works. Right. I've always pull here, push with your leg there. Now, the reason that works is because, and that's what I really didn't have in the first place in my learning was a why. And, you know, I didn't talk until I was two years old when I was a kid. I, you know, I was behind in the talking stage. Uh-huh. We've taken care of that, haven't we? Yeah, you're (laughs) catching
0: up pretty well, I'd say. (laughs)
1: Yes. Um, But but my favorite word when I was little was why.
0: Why, yeah. So is this series, uh, so it's going to continue past the first six, and it's available on Farm and Ranch, and it's going to be available in the UK. Are you going to come out with a DVD series of this, or is it available? Yes,
1: we've we've already got the first four episodes on DVD.
0: Uh Is this part of your monthly video club or Uh, subscription no
1: it's actually no it's 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 separate from
0: that if people need horsemanship advice you you provide it on a on a whole lot of different platforms not only the clinics but what are some of the other things that if people need to to get your information how can they go about doing that
1: uh well i i mean the big thing that i have got is i have an online video subscription so it's like an online library of videos I think there's over 400 full-length training videos on there now, but probably about six years ago, I was training horses, training some running horses, but I was taking in a lot of fucking bolting, rearing, warm blood, Arabian, you name it, uh-huh. and I started actually videoing them. Like the first day they came in, the second day, and every time I added something new, as in the Donkey Kong theme, whenever I taught them something new, I would video it. So, oh. And I'm not actually sure anybody else has that. I think a lot of people's videos are, this is what I would do, if I had this problem or this is what I did do. No, I don't have the problem, but the ones I've got are actually, it's like sitting there watching me train.
0: Right.
1: And that's my big thing. And so my my mm. clinics are actually subscriber-only clinics, and I've been mm. doing that for two years now. So at the clinic, instead of me having to explain to people the whole thing from the beginning, right. everybody that comes to my clinics have a fair idea where they're up to. And really, the the, the clinics are like an added benefit to being a subscriber and it's the clinics are basically for okay what's holding you back what what part of this process you stuck on what's your sticking point that's great like i said there's a a great deal of information there and the reason i went to subscriber only clinics it's not like it's not a money grab to get people to subscribe it's Mm. actually so that i can actually help you know help people a lot more because what would happen in the past is i'd have people come to clinics who were subscribers and there were people who came to clinics who weren't subscribers and had no idea what I was on about. Right. And I found that I spent most of my time trying to get the people who were not really sure what was going on catching up. And the people who'd been supporting me on, on my online subscription stuff, they were kind of getting left,
0: left you know, behind. they didn't get
1: near as much attention right. because I had to play catch up with the others. So it's not like it's an elitist sort of thing.
0: I've been to clinics like that where, you know, you're a little bit farther ahead than, you know, the bottom two or three people. And, and there's only eight people in the clinic. And you're looking at the trainer and you're going, "Jeez, I, you know, I was kind of hoping to accomplish a lot more in this clinic, but you're spending all your time having to to go over the basics or even explain your philosophy, which, you know, I came in already knowing.
1: Right. And, and, and that's, you know, and you've got to, what you have to remember there is it's not that that clinician is trying to exclude you. Right. They're trying to include the other person. Some, and and the the thing, the trouble with that is someone's going to miss out. And so, yeah, so and some of my clinics are written only clinics, which means we're not going to do any groundwork. So those people are further along. And the groundwork for me is where you take care of all the emotional, problems with horses. If you're riding a horse that has emotional issues, like they, they're anxious or whatever, uh, you're going to have a wreck. So, you know, some of the clinics I do now are, well, they're all subscriber only, but they're subscriber only ridden only, which means we're not really dealing with a lot of the emotional stuff. And we're add you know, doing them more, and it's not necessarily more advanced stuff. It might be, it might be like first ride stuff. Right that's the basics. That's like the Donkey Kong thing. Mm-hmm. Um it might be first ride stuff but we are you know, we're starting at the beginning of the ridden, not the beginning of the groundwork. And Got they've it. they've been they've been a great deal of fun, those ones, because there's a whole lot less talking and a whole lot more doing and you seem to get a lot done with those.
0: I love those kinds of things. As we wind this thing down a little bit, I'd kinda of like to ask my guest if if you know of a, a horseman who may not be very well known, somebody that Really has has a lot of horse knowledge that you really always enjoyed talking horses with. Was there some person like that in your life?
1: No, I wish there had been. I probably would have got to this point a little bit sooner. And I, I guarantee you there was. Mm-hmm. There, there there was those people around. I just was not. I was just not. I I I don't know. I said before that when I was little, my third, my you know my favorite word was why. And so I've always wanted to know why, but I think I lacked the confidence to actually ask people or maybe it's even more so I didn't want people to know I didn't know. Maybe that's what it was. I was in um, Texas the other day and I went to a friend of mine's place who trains reining horses and I filmed an episode of the principles of training. And what I did was uh, it's going to be for one of the later on ones. And we weren't working on just a principle. I said, okay, his name is Joe Schmidt. So Joe Schmidt has made the NRHA Open Faturity Finals a couple of times, the Open Derby Finals a couple of times, mm. was 2015 NRHA Non-Pro Coach of the Year. So he's a very good explainer. Mm. And um, he's a friend of mine. And I said, so just show me a training session with this horse, Joe. And he would show me something. I go, okay, so that fits into the principle of do the wrong, make the wrong thing, how the right thing, needs you That makes the principle of to get them up or get them down, you know, those sorts of things. But when I introduced the whole thing, I said, "Hey, I'm here with my friend, Joe Schmidt. And I didn't tell Joe I was going to do this, but I said, I'm here with my friend, Joe Schmidt. And, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me who my mentors were. And I always tell them, well, there was a lot of of mentors, a lot of people that I got a a little bit of stuff off, but there wasn't just one person that I got everything from. But Joe has been a huge help to me. And what Joe really... uh, the things I really got from Joe was how to be particular without being picky. Joe's very, very, very detail-oriented. <laughs> and the other thing I got from Joe was how to have the confidence to ask a dumb question and realize there are no dumb questions. And like Joe, he's, he's amazing. and His depth of knowledge is amazing because he will ask anybody anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Any trainer, he'll just, he has the confidence to just walk up and say, hey, if he doesn't know him, he probably know, everybody knows Joe now, but, back when they didn't, he'd have the confidence to walk and say, Hey, I'm Joe Schmidt. What do you think of this? And uh that's something that I that I didn't have for most of my life. So
0: it takes a bit know, of confidence to have here. that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I had I had uncles that were amazing horsemen that think about, like My 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 mother's brother was an amazing horseman. I never picked his brain. I was you know, it was almost like I was I was too afraid to let anybody know I didn't know what I was doing. And then and I've finally reached the point in life where I am the first to admit I don't know what I'm doing. And I'll tell you what, it's very liberating. It's very liberating when you can just say, you know what? I have no idea what's going on here, but I'm I'm making a pretty good guess. But I you know, if anybody's got a suggestion, let me know. And right. it's uh
0: It takes some of the pressure off because you've you've already admitted you don't know it. <laughs> so right, people aren't exactly. expecting you to know it.
1: I think I, I know for a long time I was kind of, It's not that I thought I knew it all, but I didn't want other people to know I didn't know right. it all.
0: Well, this has been great fun, Warwick. Uh, there's a lot of good horse horsemanship information in here. People can find out more about Warwick Schiller, uh maybe uh, look for the principles of horse, principle. what was it, principles of training?
1: It's called the principles of training, and uh, they can also, if they want to look at some of the stuff I'm on about, over 400 videos on YouTube too. So they're all short. Uh, You know, I started making YouTube videos quite a while ago and realized after looking at the analytics that most people don't watch more than about three or four minutes. So instead of putting long involved videos on YouTube, I kind of just plant a seed, make a point. A lot of the videos, I don't really tell you how to do something. But I, I just do say, I say things to make you think about what you're doing maybe a little bit different than you have in the past.
0: Right. And then you can find out just about everything about you at warrickshiller.com. I'll have those in the, that in the show notes. Yeah. So I hope we run into each other again. And I love talking with you, Warwick.
1: Thanks so much, John.
0: That'll do it for this show. Thanks to Warwick Schiller. You can find out all that Warwick has to offer at WarwickSchiller.com. I had a chance to check out that first episode of Principles of Training on Farm and Ranch. He does a good job. Check that out. He'll like it. I'll have all the links in our show notes at woepodcast.com You'll find a podcast on just about any subject. And, if you don't, shoot me an email and I'll work at getting one out for you. Email me at john at woepodcast.com Pick up all the episodes of the Woe Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Hit subscribe and you'll never miss an episode. Take us along when you ride or drive or just working around the barn. Woe Podcast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah, we're everywhere. Kind of like a bad rash. Anyway, need more? Join our mailing list at woepodcast.com. Every Friday, I'll send you a quick tip, something you can do to build a better relationship with your horse with just a few minutes practice. In good news, Renee has retired from her grown-up job, and now we hope to enjoy our horses even more together, and maybe I can get her back to a regular hosting spot. Thanks again for listening to the show and sharing this podcast. Like I said earlier, we've really grown in the last couple of months, and we owe it all to you. So until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody.